Knowing and understanding God. Is God a trinity? So we're going to talk about knowing and understanding God. And I'm going to morph into talking a little bit about the trinity. To get started, I'd like to just begin with a scripture from Jeremiah chapter 9. And that's where I came up with the title, Knowing and Understanding God. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24 says this. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast about their wisdom or the strong boast about their strength or the rich boast about their riches. But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have an understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. So God wants us to know and understand him. That's what he's getting at here. And I think it's the message writ large of the entire scripture. And not only does he want us to know and understand him, he wants us to then pattern our lives after what we know. Because that, that is how we will get joy and pleasure from the gift of eternal life. Without that, eternity could end up being just an eternity of being very unhappy. We need to know and understand God. We need to delight in the things that God delights in. And then we can enjoy eternity. So, we know and understand him. Two key ways. And they were brought out in that very verse that we just read in Jeremiah. He wants us to know and understand him, one, through what he does. Right? I mean, you, you know, people will say, well, I'm this and I'm that and this is important and that's important. But when the rubber hits the road, you judge a person by what he, what he or she does, don't you? Talks cheap. So we judge or we understand God through what he does. And, and the word there, loving kindness, is a word hesed. Hesed. And it means grace. It means mercy. And, and Loving kindness. And that's what God is all about, acting with kindness, mercy, and grace. If you think about the Bible and you think about what's going on in the Scripture, we have all this history of, of the comings and goings of Israel and God's doings with these people. Why? Why is that all in there? It's to show God in action. The Bible isn't a book of philosophy with a bunch of ideas. It's actually a book of action. So we see God and understand him through what he does. You know, and then a book like Psalms you know, is sort of people reflecting on how God has interacted with us and how, what does that mean. Now another way that uh, we understand God is through what he says. So he does just have some statements that we need to listen to and, and hear. right? So what does he say? Now those things that he says I think we can categorize as laws. He gives us laws. Uh, behavioral standards, if you would, okay? And uh, these are guidelines for justice, righteousness, and so forth. The first place, you know, I think any one of us would go to for that is to begin with the Ten Commandments. And there's so much more, but God explains himself in this way, and we, we learn about him this way. Um, 
So like I said, what he does, that's the record of, of Israel's history, God in action. He's ready to bless with every good thing. But when you think about Israel's history, he's also ready to judge. So he is a judge who judges in righteousness. And that's part of the, the whole up and down of their history and so forth. But with mercy, judges with mercy. Okay, uh, what he says, he's given us this foundation of, of laws and behavioral case studies. And these are God's ideals for human interaction. And then, above and beyond all this, God revealed himself to us in an even more powerful way through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about what was going on when, when we're talking about the first coming of Jesus Christ. God himself became a human being. So we could see God in action. What is he like? How do we know and we understand God? By what he says and what he does. Mostly what he does, really, if you think about it. You know, and Jesus did things and, and they were to show, this is what I'm all about. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And he came in the flesh so that we might better know and understand God. And I think vice versa, that, that God might better understand us. That's written into Hebrews where, you know, he became a better high priest and more effective savior because he understands what it's like to be a human being, right? So it goes both ways. Now, however, <laughs> most professing Christians, and by that I mean Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, pretty much every, most people out there insist, they insist that God must be understood in a very different manner. That's the Trinity. You might have thought that was a Toyota, but no, it's a, <laughs> the Trinity. Or a Wankel rotary engine or something, but no. No, that's the Trinity. So, um, you might not know what the, the Trinity is all about. You might think you know. Honestly, that's probably good enough because most people don't really know anyways. But let me read you a few statements that I found about it, okay? Um, this is a nice summary. I picked this up like from Wikipedia. The Trinity doctrine expresses the belief that God is one being made up of three distinct persons who exist in co-equal essence and co-eternal communion as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, that's a summary. Now, what, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you something called the um, uh, Athanasian Creed, and this was come up with like uh, in the fourth century. It goes like this, okay? This is a little more formal. This is still around, folks. So just so we know what we're talking about when, we talk, when, when I say the Trinity. You know, what, what is he talking about? Okay. Um, it goes like this. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, and the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father, uncreated, the Son, uncreated, and the Holy Spirit, uncreated. The Father, incomprehensible. The Son, incomprehensible. And the Holy Spirit, incomprehensible. The Father, eternal. The Son, eternal. And the Holy Spirit, eternal. And yet, they are not three eternals, but one eternal. And also, they are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So, 
there's a little bit more to it, but it, in a nutshell, that's, that's what the Trinity teaching is saying, okay? And uh, if, if you found it a little bit confusing, join the rest of the world. Um, for most people, you know, the, 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 tr the Trinity is the central doctrine of Christianity. It is the thing that determines and defines, it's the litmus test, if you would, that defines who is and who is not a follower of Christ. Okay, that's what, that's what the vast majority of people will say. Okay, and they say things like, well, it is impossible for a person to have a sincere belief in Christ without believing and professing the Trinity. Um, without acceptance of the Trinity, you cannot be saved. That sort of thing, okay? You look puzzled, but no, that's, that's what people teach, that you have to basically agree to what I think you would have to agree is a somewhat philosophical and um, um, uh, very, I don't know, I can't think of the right word right now. It's just based on words, it's, it's concepts and ideas, and you have to agree to this intellectual proposition in order to be saved. Sounds a lot like Gnosticism to me, but Okay, now historically, and, and by that I mean, you know, back in the bad old days when, when religion was combined with the power of the state, those were not good times, if you didn't give lip service to this teaching, to this concept, that could lead to imprisonment, it could lead to banishment, if you were lucky, torture, and death, okay? Now, the Trinity formula is a way of describing and seeking to understand God, but a way to understand and seek God that's not found in the Bible. It, it's not. And worse yet, almost everyone who is out there agrees that it's a concept that really cannot be explained very thoroughly, or very well. It is incomprehensible. I mean, even in the, in the creed there, the word incomprehensible is quite you know, prominent. It is incomprehensible to the human mind. Uh, one very, very famous man from many, many centuries ago said, you know, I believe it because it's absurd. And because it's absurd, it shows that I have faith. Right? It's an absurd contradiction that one is three and three is one, such that it requires suspending all reason and logic, and therefore to believe it is an act of faith. So kind of a circular argument, but that's sort of how it works. Now, th these aren't really my words. I have summarized them somewhat, but these are what Trinitarian believers say themselves. And the, the church, United Church of God, has a booklet called The Trinity, right? And if you go through it, you'll see that almost the whole first chapter is just quote after quote after quote after quote after quote after quote after quote of all these people who are teachers of the Trinity who say, yeah, you really, yeah, you can't really find it in the Bible and you really can't understand it, but it's super duper important, okay? Um, so I'm not going to go through all those, but I... I I'll charge you with, with reading through the first chapter of the Trinity booklet from UCG. And um, 
and you can take care of that, you know, just verifying for yourself. So it's no wonder then that the Trinity teaching isn't really understood by most churchgoers. The average person who sits in a church doesn't really have the ability to explain the Trinity to you. And mostly they just kind of like sidestep it. You know, they kind of ignore it, especially when it comes to the Holy Spirit. That's a particularly difficult thing for people to explain and understand. The average person can't explain it. They, you know, they can't. And more importantly, they can't turn to any verse in the scripture that actually like proclaims it. You can say, oh, I believe the Trinity. And then you can search around in the scriptures and find things that kind of like, yeah, well, that, you know, they must have meant the Trinity there. That must have been what they've been talking about. That's the best you can do. Yet even so, even the average person accepts that without believing it, a person cannot be saved. And, you know, and, and we had a friend who had, um, they wanted to get their child into a homeschool program that was a Christian-based program. And one of the questions they had for her was, do you believe in the Trinity? And she said, well, no, not as, no, no. And so they said, well, sorry, you can't be part of the program. So it's still out there. I mean, I mean maybe she could have said, well, can you explain the Trinity to me? <laughs> she, she knew enough not to do that. Um, now, look, the Church of God agrees that there are matters out there about reality. I mean, if you think of a reality that considers both material, you know, flesh and blood, stone and wood, and then one that also encompasses that which is spiritual, well, obviously, I mean, there are matters that are uh, out there that we just can't comprehend, right? There are things that we can't grasp, okay? But let me ask you this. When you hit a wall and there's something you can't grasp or understand, what should you do? What should you do? Well, I say the answer is simply this. One, we should refer to or limit ourselves to clear biblical statements. That's one thing that I think would be a good plan. And the second is to remain silent where there is no clear biblical teaching available. Those are the options that I see. Okay. Is this just a dead issue? I mean, when you get into it all, you know, I was reading through the creed and all that, you're going back centuries, you're going back, oh wow, what is it, like 1,600 years or something like that? It's a long time ago. Who cares, right? See my guy there, who cares? Who cares, all right? And I think a, a lot of people, you know, will, will kind of say, yeah, you know, it's out there, but who really cares? You know, um, how does what I believe or don't believe about the Trinity make me a, a better person or a worse person, right? How does it affect me? How does it affect anybody? What does it really, what, what does it do? I think that it does have an impact. I'm going to try and, and draw that out a little bit. I believe that, in summary, the Trinity teaching sort of obscures our understanding of God by giving us an alternate that's really not from his own word, but it obscures our understanding of God's 
pattern, his actual pattern for human interaction among thinking, feeling beings, which is family. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But that's the pattern for reality. When I go back to the beginning, when I was talking about learning about the things of God and learning about how much you enjoy eternity. Well, the pattern of interaction among the family pattern is God's way. And the Trinity kind of gets in the way of that. Um, two, I believe that adopting the, the Trinity concept as how we must understand and explain God kind of violates the first three commandments too. And I'll get around to that a bit as well. So let me uh, go back and do a little bit of history. I'm going to keep the history to, I'm going to keep it down. You know, I could nerd out on the history here. My wife will, will tell you, but I, I try not to. Uh, it is a concept that was developed long ago. Long ago. Remember I said, wow, 1,600 plus years, right? But wait, 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 wait. Um, didn't the church start like 2,000 years ago? There's a gap in there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So the term Trinity, was, it's not an idea from the beginning. In fact, the term Trinity isn't even found in the Bible. It's just, it's just not there. It was first used by a man named Tertullian, and uh, that would be towards the end of the second century, like 190 to 200 AD. All right, that would be the first time that anyone used the word Trinity, uh, which is already 150 years after the church began. So that's a big gap. I mean, you think back 150 years, a lot of water goes under the bridge after 150 years, right? I mean, I wouldn't know. I wasn't around 150 years ago. I don't know. Some of you were, I know. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I don't think anybody's that old. We've got some, we've got some people who've been around for a long time, but no, 150 years ago, and, and who knows what happened before you were born, right? Um, so this word Trinity is actually a Boro word. It's a Boro word that was picked up from Greek philosophy, and uh, in particular, this guy named Plato. You've, you've heard of Plato before, right? I, I think I've mentioned him, so you've heard of that name. He was a big-time guy with Greek philosophy. He's the place that this word kind of comes from, right? And uh, the Greeks, the Greek philosophers, this will be my, my uh, very curt summary of, of Greek philosophy. Well, the Greeks were basically obsessed with narrowing all uh, explanations about everything in reality to one unifying principle. We want to find the, the one thing that explains everything. And we still, we still have that desire. You, know, you see your, your uh, quantum mechanics and your Stephen Hawking's astronomers, and they all want to find you know, the one unifying field theory. We still have that same desire to boil everything down to one explanation or one unifying concept that explains everything. The Greeks were really into this. And <laughs> they were also really into geometry. Did you like ge who likes geometry? Ah, one, got one. Okay, one geometry lover. I, I kind of like geometry. The Greeks were, they were totally into geometry. They saw it as a way of, ex of understanding all reality. And they were obsessed with triangles. 
you know, it sounds dumb. It is dumb, but it sounds dumb, especially Pythagoras, right? Loved triangles. How many sides does a triangle have? Three. <laughs> Anyways, so they liked ones and they liked threes. Okay, that's my summary of Greek philosophy for today. They like ones and they like threes. And, you know, I, I put it in very simplistic terms, but you know, it's kind of true. So the word trinity only came into wider use around the 4th or the 5th century. Okay, that's when you start seeing it in, in written, written form. And the formal doctrine of the trinity was first presented at the Council of Nicaea. This is the picture of the people of the council there. Um, no, this would be the Council of Constantinople. So it was first presented at the Council of Nicaea, which took place in 325 AD. You've heard me talk about that before. But it was only later at the Council of Constantinople, which took place in 381, that the Holy Spirit was added to the mix. Okay? So this is the creed that I read a little earlier, and they're all standing there, you know, very proud. Kind of like when, the, you know, the president signs something, and then he, he goes and he shows it and shows everybody what he's signed. This is kind of what it is. It's a photo op where they had painting. There's a painting op. All right? So they were still into optics. Yep. The Trinity Doctrine only came around after a long time, after 350 years later. The Trinity Doctrine is not a teaching of Jesus. Jesus did not teach it, nor did the apostles. It was not something that was there at the beginning of the church. It only came about 350 years later. Yet, it is proclaimed as absolutely essential. Something's odd here. Something's odd. You know, I like to ask questions. My question is, what's really going on here? And this is getting into a little bit of my own personal theories and so forth. Anyone know who that is? Well, I kind of wrote it down at the bottom, yeah. Anyways. So what's really going on here with the Trinity Doctrine? This is a little bit of my, my own thinking on this. So the initial presentation of the Trinity, they had this council and people came in and they were talking about these theories and everybody had their own theory. It was very controversial. People from the East and the West all had crazy weird ideas, all right? The true Church of God was off way somewhere you know, to the east of Cappadocia, they were out of it. They were not really part of all this, but people gathered at this, these two councils and they had a lot of crazy ideas. And only a small minority of people actually had this idea about the Trinity. Only a small minority actually believed the teaching that came out of the councils. What we have is really a compromise formulated by a committee overseen by the emperor of Rome. He was the emperor, the guy in the middle there. Okay? The other guys are the religious people, but it's overseen by the emperor. Okay? Now, if you think about it, what the emperor wanted, let's go back to the picture of the emperor. What the emperor wanted, so you can get it in your mind, he wanted, he wanted the empire to be unified. You know, just like we talk in our country, we need more unity. We're at odds with each other. We need to be unified. I'm going to unify everybody. Oh, no, I'm going to unify everybody. You know, right? It's kind of what you hear in politics all the time, right? The emperor wanted one state religion. He saw this Christianity stuff was popular. Hey, we can have this as the state religion. This will draw everybody together. But that means everybody has to be in agreement, right? And they weren't. 
So they gathered them all together and kind of hammered out some agreements. Because the emperor's main purpose in adopting Christianity as the state religion was to unify and strengthen this society that was crumbling and falling apart and at odds. It was struggling. So the emperor had his agenda, and then the theologians, the other guys there, they kind of struggled among one another to see whose teaching would be adopted as the official truth, right? And then that would mean who is going to enjoy royal patronage, which would include money and, you know, big buildings and protection and all kinds of cool stuff. Now, my opinion is that the doctrine of the Trinity is about power and authority and submission. If you think about it, I'm, I'm not really going out that very far on a limb. <laughs> so a lot of things are, aren't they? Now, all the players from the fourth century, they're all dead and gone, right? All those guys in the picture, they're all gone, right? Um, but the issue of authority remains. It's still a big deal. And we're you know, working our way through it in our own country even now, right? The Trinity teaching demands an answer. Demands an answer. Like you know, to my friend who wanted to get her daughter into a, a, you know, a Christian-based homeschool. Do you believe the Trinity? And it demands an answer. What is the real question? The question, in my opinion, is do you accept the church, whatever that church might be, a self-proclaimed church, do you accept the church as having the authority to define the terms of salvation without any direct reference to Scripture? Do you? Will you agree to an irrational statement as truth because those in power threaten you with dire consequences if you do not. Do you? So the picture up here is George Orwell, who's famous for writing a book called 1984. And you probably had to read 1984 in high school. Who did? I should see some hands. You don't have to read it anymore? Okay, you read it on your own, all right. Uh, it was assigned reading when I was in high school. And everybody seems, you know, it's a part of, it's very difficult to come up with a book or anything like that that is really common knowledge that everybody's read and, and this is close. I think a lot of people refer to it without ever having read it. There's a very famous sequence in this. So there's, uh, he's captured because he's, 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 um, he's not with the program. And so he, he basically gets arrested because he's, he's thinking incorrectly. And there's this guy named O'Brien and he's got him in an interrogation room and he holds up his left hand, right, with his back, his back, at the back of his hand towards the, the man here, Winston, he's called. And he's got his thumb hidden and the four fingers extended. And he says, how many fingers am I holding up, Winston? Four? And if the party says that it's not four, but five, how many fingers am I holding up? And he says, four? And then that's when the torture began. And it continued until he realized that the only way to get out of it was that he had to agree with what the party said was true. If the party says that's five, then if he said five, it would stop. 
And he had to agree to this even though he knew, common sense told him it was not true. But it's an issue of power. If I say it's true, if the party says it's true, if the church says it's true, will you agree? That's what I think is really going on with the Trinity. A little bit of my own personal conjecture. So let's talk about the oneness of God. Now, the Trinity is part an importing of Greek uh, philosophical content concepts and ideas into the church, okay? But it is also an attempt to address the monotheistic ideas, you know, the one God with the New Testament presentation of a father and a son. A father who is God and a son who is God. So it has its base in a legitimate question. Let's take a look at those scriptures, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the classic Old Testament monotheistic statement. It's called the Shema by the Hebrews. And that same concept is also found in the New Testament. Okay? But in the New Testament, I'm going to take you somewhere else, other than places that basically say the same thing as this. I'm going to take you to John 1. And look at verse 1. John 1, verse 1. And let's read verses 1 through 5, which say this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. Ooh. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now drop down to verse 14. That word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. That's the classic New Testament statement, which gives us a new way of understanding God. And confusion, I believe, arises because of preconceptions you know, so, so much bad thinking comes from preconceptions that we bring to an issue. And I think here confusion comes because of preconceptions about what the word God means and what the word one means. So, the word for God in Hebrew is a word that is it's Elohim. Elohim. Okay? And in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, which we just read, the Hebrew word for God there is Elohim. All right? Now, the, the I am on the end of a word there, Elohim, teraphim, you know, stuff like that, it's a, it's a way of making a word plural. So when we want to say a plural, we put what letter? Yeah. So apple, apples. 
Orange, oranges. Singular, plural. This is the same thing. The singular form of the word here is Eloah, which means God. The plural is Elohim, which means God's, or usually people will say the mighty ones. Okay, that's a more literal translation of it. But there's Eloah and Elohim. The word that's used uh, here in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 is Elohim. And you see that word else, plenty of times elsewhere in the scripture. So right away, here in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, there's something more going on in this verse than meets the eye, isn't there? But the, signific the significance of it never really came forth until the coming of Jesus. People never really had to think about what this verse was saying until Jesus came. The Word who was with God and who was God. Now, what does it mean to be one? Most read the word one in places like Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 as a statement about singularity or being, okay? I have one apple. I have one car. Press the button one time. That's a very common way of thinking of one, right? But it's not the only way of thinking of one. Now, this way of thinking of one, you know, press the button one time. I have one apple. The Greek philosophers, with their obsession with finding that one unifying principle, they would have eaten it up. They would have definitely gone with this perspective, right? One being about singularity or being. However, this is very important, especially for you know, nerds like me who like to look into words and study them and stuff like that. God does not base his revelation of truth on dictionaries or lexicons or word definitions. And you know, many times a, a teacher and a speaker can get way off base by spending too much time focused on word meanings and definitions and stuff like that. They're important. But God does not base understanding of his revelation and truth on word definitions. He bases it on concrete examples and living experience. Okay? In other words, things that everybody can understand. And the two most powerful biblical examples of a different way to think about oneness are human marriage or family and the church. And these are the things that God has given us to understand oneness. So Genesis 2 verse 24. I had this on my mind because I was uh, officiating at a wedding just last month. Speaking here of the, the first uh, man and woman, you know, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Verse 24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So a couple goes from being two separate entities, you know, man, woman, and they become one flesh. 
They become a family. They become a family through their covenantal relationship of marriage. Now go to Mark 10, verse 6 and 9. Mark 10. Mark 10. Verses uh, 6 through 9. This is Jesus being interrogated sort of by the, the crowd, the uh, Pharisees and so forth about various things. And he says, says this about that same verse that we read. They're asking him about uh, divorce. And uh, Jesus replied, At the very beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So the husband and wife, I mean, if, if you think about it, quite literally become one flesh through begetting and birthing children. They do. You know, a child is made up of half the chromosomes of the father, half the chromosomes of the mother, and that's what creates this new being. And I put it to you that every single person in this room has experienced that. You've all been born. You all have two sets of chromosomes. You have two parents. You're all part of this process. This is a concrete living example that God's given us to understand what oneness can be. Okay? We've all been part of a family, for better or for worse. Okay? Now let's go to the Second part, the church. Galatians 3, verse 28. Plenty of verses I could have used. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 28. Will do. And uh, where am I here? 3, verse 28. Okay, very, another very well-known verse here. says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, so it's not a matter of ethnicity. Neither slave nor free, so it's not a matter of class. Nor is there male or female, so it's not a matter of gender, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the church is to be one. You see that he's talking about the church. The church is to be one. This is another way of understanding what one can mean. It is uh, one, even though it has many moving parts. You know, you know car, car has an engine. It has wheels, it has exhaust pipes, and it has windows, and hopefully a great stereo system. But it's a car, right? It's one car. And Paul, Paul uses the, he uses the example when talking of the church of a body, you know, with, with different body parts, arms, legs, eyes, nose, right? Many parts, but one. Right? That's in, in 1 Corinthians 12. Let's go, though, to John 17. Let's go to John 17. Jesus' parting words to the disciples. And let's begin with an introductory uh, verse here in, in uh, verse 3. He says, uh, Now, this is eternal life. And he's praying here. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
So there's only one God, that's what he's saying. Verse 11. I remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as you are one. Whoa. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Let's take a look at verse 20. And uh, read the next three verses. It says, verse 20, My prayer is not for them alone. And he's praying for the disciples who will become the church, of course. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you. And you. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have, and have, and have loved them even as you have loved me. So, like the body of believers, the Father and the Son are one. Isn't that interesting? It goes both ways. Let them be one just as you and I are one. So the body of believers, similar. Just like the body of believers, the Father and the Son are one. Although still a Father and still a Son. And God chose, I believe, the roles of Father and son, as his way of telling you, God, Elohim, is a family. A unit of interaction that puts them in a state of oneness. And family and church, they are the pattern. <coughs> Excuse me. The family, the church, they are the pattern, and they are patterned on the relationship of the Father and the Son. And it's a pattern for us to follow. And within that relationship, there are some key components. There's authority. This is, this is God's pattern for how people can be one. There's authority. There's submission, respect. And there's love for one another. The, the other whom, with whom you are one. This is the pattern for oneness that God has. And this is God's grand design for thinking and feeling beings. This is what the feast was all about. How can you live in eternity? We experience it and we learn it in our own families. We experience and we learn it in our own church. And this is the pattern that will be extended into all the earth and all the universe. And it is a pattern for how we can all live together in peace. It's the answer. And the Trinity teaching obscures the clarity of this central truth. <coughs> the answer, if you will. Isn't it far better that we accept God's revelation of himself as a family than coming up with something of our own? Okay. A model of God 
built by human design. <coughs> Excuse me. So the Trinity also builds a model of God that is not based on words or examples or explanations that God has provided in his word. It is based on a model of God that is from human reasoning, human philosophies, human word games. And therefore, I put it to you that it, it is a model of God built by human design, which plays fast and loose with the first three commandments. And that's not a good place for us to be. So, Exodus 20. I'm going to go there if you want. I hope you know these by heart. I'm going to go there and read them to you. Exodus 20, verse 3 says, You shall have no other gods before me. Well, the, the, the Trinity God is a is another God from the one presented in Scripture. It's a different model of God than the one we find in Scripture. That's not good. Exodus 20, verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So, an idol. And the Scriptures have... Some very, very um, interesting words to say about, you know, like in Isaiah, you know, he talks about someone building an idol and he says, you know, they make it out of wood and they cover it in metal and then they nail its arms on there and then they bow down and worship it, right? An idol is a, is a presentation of God. Oh, another good example is the golden calf. That's another great example, you know, and they threw all their gold earrings and stuff into the fire and melted it down they formed it into this cow so an idol is a presentation of God built by human hands according to human design and you know it's here though instead of using gold and silver or wood to build an image of, of God the Trinity teaching uses human reason and human philosophies to accomplish the same end and that's playing pretty fast and loose with the second commandment, isn't it? So verse 7 of Exodus 20, that's the third commandment, says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold you guiltless who misuse his name. So when you think about misusing someone's name, well, basically, you know, it means you're going to attach their name, you know, whether it's Bob or Susan or you know, whoever, and you're going to attach their name to something that affects their reputation badly, right? Not John, why well, I saw him, I saw him doing this and, you know. You attach him to something bad. You're using his name in vain, all right? The Trinity God is a mis misrepresentation of God. It, it just is. It's a misrepresentation of God not based on his own word or his own revealing of himself, but based on how we've worked it up because we wanted to turn the council of Nicaea into a success. And the, it's a misrepresentation of God attaching his name 
and his reputation to ideas that are, by their own words, kind of confusing. But, you know, are, are, to get back to the language of the commandments, are vain, are empty, are useless. You know, many people who believe the Trinity do also kind of don't really see its purpose other than a litmus test to keep some people or to judge others. So, in conclusion, getting back to where we began, God wants us to know and to understand him so that we might seek to be like him. That's the point of knowing God, so that we might be like him or desire to be like him, to conform ourselves to his pattern of living and thinking. And he wants to be understood. He wants to be understood. How? Through what he does and what he says. But he's also given us living models. And this is very important, I believe, when you think about God's word, how he interacts with people. And people, I think, sometimes are frustrated with the Bible because they think, well, it should, it should just tell us. Well, it does. But it uses concrete examples. And God's given us models through which we can understand him. And we've took, taken a look at two of the biggies there, the family and the church. And they also address questions about what it means to be one. You know, how, how can you be one but also have many moving parts? And it does it in a manner that affects behavior. And this is super important. You know, you get back to the question, what does this all mean? Who cares? Well, when you start thinking about oneness, and how God is one, and how the church is one, and how a family is one, it affects your behavior. It affects how you treat other people, right? We went through some of those when we were taking a look at uh, oneness, authority, submission, love. So a better understanding of God as a family affects our behavior. It has a moral impact on us, and therefore has tremendous value and purpose. God doesn't just say things for the sake of saying them. They have a purpose. Because if we're going to be one in the way that God and his word present being one, we have to practice loving kindness, you know, mercy. We have to practice judgment. We have to practice justice and grace. To achieve that oneness, we have to do all kinds of really good, positive things that move us forward towards eternity. And finally, when it comes to matters that are beyond our ability to explain in a, in a you know, sensible manner, what should we do? We should limit ourselves to what God chooses to say about himself, or we should remain silent. <laughs>